How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 253. Dear Diary, it is now day 253 since my wretched cousins Edmund and Lucy invaded our house. What's that from? It is from The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Ah. Is that the sequel to the, the one everyone one. actually watched? That's the third one. That's the third one. Okay. So it goes uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yep. And then Prince Caspian. Oh. And then Dawn Treader. Dawn Treader is the weird one because two of the th- four kids mm. aren't actually in it because oh, okay. they get too old. I oh, think, so it's the younger kids that are in it. Yeah, the Edmund and Lucy yep. are in that one. But the other two, Peter and... I can't remember what the other sister's name is. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's been a lot. I haven't seen that film since literally 2005 when it came well, out. Well, you know what? It's such a remarkable thing because obviously at the time, I think it was really riding... Well, it was riding the mix of the Harry Potter train. It and, was absolutely, yeah. Um, and... Lord of the Rings, I'd say, it was in that sort of sure. like literature-based, uh, yeah, fantasy novels, huge epic scale film adaptations. Yeah, I mean that and was the, it at the and time. I think by the time Dawn Treader came around, they'd they'd almost mentally checked it, kind mm. of like they were like, Harry oh, there's Potter not money was in this. wrapping up. Twilight was sort of wrapping up. I think that might have been 2012. In that, mm. I, I, I can tell you. Um, and then I feel like like your Alice in Wonderlands, like the Tim Burton ones. Yes. Those were kind of high concept a little bit, like definitely higher budget. Yeah, no, I, I see. So it's sort of on the tail end there. I actually have another quote for you, Zeke, which is not okay. as... I, I, I like this. So this is actually Nick Cage from Leaving Las Vegas. Okay. And the reason I like this quote, let me, let me say it the way that I remember him saying it in the film. I got enough for about $250, $300 a day. So technically, 253 is in that sentence, in that order. Did you like leaving Las Vegas? I never saw it. Oh, there you go. Did you like it? No, I oh, didn't. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Because I, I, that's obviously <laughs> the one he wins his Oscar for. Oh. That's his best actor Oscar film. Oh, interesting. And I, I was like... Is this like, a Zeke spicy take? I think so. Maybe it's, it's, it's you know it's a film at the time where you know you've got Elizabeth Shue probably at one of the heights of is Elizabeth Shue or Sharon Stone I think it's Elizabeth Shue, um, but I now have to check this. Las Why are you not coming up Vegas. on my nineteen ninety five? It is indeed Elizabeth Shue. It's kind of like you know obviously it's three point seven though yeah, yeah so this is I guess a bit of a spicy take I think so. I didn't like it. It was yeah. not for me um, as a film. But like you said, it's it's seen relatively positive by the film community. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought it was um, a good example of the the over the top Nick Cage-ness I didn't like. It's kind okay, of, but it's how I feel about him and how I feel about Jim Carrey. It's sort of like I think people have that love hate relationship with both of those actors, but particularly with the whole Nick Cage is he a good actor, bad actor joke. Yeah. He's a good actor. I mean, like, I mean, there's no debate with Jim Carrey because there are examples of him being just a straight up phenomenal actor. Um, even though you're right, he has the comedic performances that go way over the top, um, and that's just his style. Nick Cage, I think it's a genuine question. I think like that's a genuine question. I don't know anyone could truly answer. I think <laughs> it's like I mean, Keanu Reeves, really. Yeah, you know what? That's a fair bump. That's a very fair bump. Um, well, Jake. Speaking of like those little fun trivias, like you're living mm. in Las Vegas one, do you have any fun trivia facts from the film of the week? Carol Reed's The Third Man. I do. I do. And it's funny because um, 
I know I know the talk of the town is not necessarily um, for Carol Reed. It's uh, another particular person involved uh, in the production, Mr. Orson Welles, but I'm not going to talk about him for my fun fact. I want to go back to Carol Reed, who uh, obviously this film is notorious for its many, 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 many Dutch tilt uses throughout the film, and it wasn't the film that invented it, but it, it sure is probably the most famous, consistent use of it throughout this film and yep. the crew were very much aware of this fact they were definitely uh savvy to it it wasn't something that they didn't really notice until the film was edited it was very much i guess a joke on set because on the final day of filming the crew bought uh the director a spirit level as a gift <laughs> get your damn shot straight mate Yes. Yeah, Reed, what's going on here? Yeah, so I, I thought that was quite humorous. That is actually a really good present, mm. um, I would say. I wonder if he used it in future films. Well, <laughs> I actually liked that. I thought that was really good. Um, another fun uh, film trivia fact that surrounds this film is it, we'll, mm. we'll actually talk about someone we've actually talked about pretty recently on the show, Ooh. naming Martin Scorsese, obviously, with the Killers of the Flower Moon episode. Yes. But a huge fan of this film is indeed Mr. Scorsese himself. No surprise there, given his age and sort of the the sure. cultural relevancy of this film. This is a man who, who grew up watching, you know, in that Spielberg era, obviously anything from the noir era into that. French New Wave into, obviously, your Westerns. So, mm. Scorsese actually ended up writing a major thesis surrounding just this film. So, uh, look, that's, hey, we've got something in common there, me and Martin, there, both there writing go. essays surrounding this film. <laughs> um, he got a B plus, which is actually probably roughly what I got <laughs> for my ATAR <laughs> um, essays on this too. Um, but it's quite funny that his tutor of the time saying, forget it, it's just a thriller which um, is That's quite so funny. hilarious. The, uh, well, let's the just say... The dismissal of it. The dismissal that tutors can sometimes give on films that maybe don't speak to them. I'm sure That's we have very others. similar um, experiences in our own film school experiences, Jake. Yeah, I think it's funny because, you know, I mean, we love Scorsese here on this podcast, of course, and there's the whole discord with, you know, he's just taste of Marvel and everything. I as much as I think he's absolutely right about everything he says in that example, it does sort of lean into the old man yells at cloud territory, especially for filmmakers where, you know, oh, it's not what it was when I was growing up. And I think film professors tend to get that more than, I guess, people who are still working in the field. Like, you know, you got you got Steven Spielberg coming out and praising everything everywhere all at once and like how, you know, the Daniels is so innovative and these are the kinds of filmmakers we should be sort of rising to the top these days. And yet there are so many film professors out there who do not care to see it, haven't seen it, don't care at all about, you know, it's overrated, it's overrated. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I think that does speak to that thing where the film's, as revered as they are and like every every way you in turn you look on the internet this film is considered a masterpiece to have someone then be like ah it's just a thriller who cares who cares I, I have to admit I do love your old man yells at cloud <laughs> expression it's actually such a accurate way because yeah I mean let's let's put in perspective when Scorsese's in film school it's the mid 70s mm. he's in his 20s and you know, as two gentlemen in our twenties, yeah. Um, and we were in our you know early, very early twenties, late teens when we were in film school. But it's quite funny because you're 100 percent right. It's that 
moment where he's kind of gone but it's it's basically equivalent of the films that we would have watched in the from the 80s and the 90s being like oh mm. these are great indie films exactly exactly um and then people being like well they're just no they're just like dazed and confused is not a really good film it's mm. just a perfectly fine film about people talking but it's you know. Yeah, I guess like a, a good example would be like our generation, like Pulp Fiction's the greatest film of all time. Fantastic, yeah, and I'm sure there's one. plenty of professors and older filmmakers out there who are like, ah, it's gibberish, it's garbage. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's, I mean that I don't think that's talked about enough in film criticism. Well, I think just this idea of like what, you know, it is what it is, and it's like we need to take into account the generational dissonance in in the way that certain films are perceived yeah. and it's not a bad or a good thing it's just we shouldn't ignore it so yeah. I, I find that a very interesting trivia fact and, you, found and there. you know that's such a good point you brought up there with that generational dissonance because that doesn't just occur in 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 media and art i feel like although it's it can be quite overt there but it occurs sure. in jobs and, and workplaces yeah. and lifestyles it's sure. like you know that generational differences it can be very frustrating as a younger person in an in an industry so you know mm. that has that sort of oh well, you know back when we were your age it's the easiest it's a hundred it's very frustrating and you really hope that when you get to a Spielberg's age you're like watching something that the Daniel see and you're going wow that was innovative and you're crazy. still hip with it yeah yeah and exactly. I agree I mean we loved everything everywhere all at once and mm. and I'm glad that we're still at that point and I hope when we're in our fifties and our sixties we watch a film that comes out by you know the Daniels Junior and. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, wow, that was really innovative and crazy. And we we open our minds up to it and sure. we don't go, oh, it's not a Scorsese film, so I don't want to watch it. Or, exactly. Or exactly. it's not a Tarantino film. I don't want to watch it. Like, yeah. you know, that's the key is you have to open our minds to it. And um, I, I can see, I could see people not liking it because it almost feels like a TikTok. It's so fast paced. Like I understand those criticisms. I'm just saying if it doesn't align with, you know, the kinds of films that resonated with you 20, 30 years earlier in your life, that doesn't automatically make it bad. Yeah. So, um, yeah. No, it's a... Man, we went to a little bit of a rabbit hole there with... <laughs> that fact. With Scorsese's little thesis right up. I love that. <laughs> I, I was here for it. Jake, what have you caught in the last week? So, I caught a couple of things. I'll quickly... Well, okay. As promised, I watched all of Gen V. Watched all eight I episodes I also this did. Week. Hey, so we're all up to date. Um, gotta say, I mean, look, I there's little things I can poke at it, but overall, I was very, I I found it very enjoyable. Yeah, I turned around on it in the second half. I there's some elements, and we won't spoil it. There's some elements revealed in the last couple of episodes that are like this is pretty cool. Yeah, and it almost kind of recontextualizes because the thing I agreed with, I don't know if you explicitly said this last week, Zeke. Um, I was like, what is the driving question? Like, there is a mystery, and that's evident from the first episode. Sure didn't really care for it until certain things occurred and by the end I was like oh that pays off in such a cool way yeah that is like okay I understand why this is the sister show to the boys like the themes the the anti-authoritarian and and sort of that chase for justice and like overpowered beings like that all comes back in such a clever way by the end of Gen V um but that also said I actually do because I I know you had some issues as well with it almost felt too fast-paced we weren't exploring the characters enough do you think we sort of got there by the end? Um, with some, yes. Not okay. with all. I, okay. I still think, especially given the events of those last couple of episodes and the theology of, of characters mm. really accelerating towards the, the end 
and and battle lines are drawn between our ensemble cast based yep. on their ideologies that run in parallel with basically what happened in the last season of the boys mm. um, it felt like such a telltale video game moment yes when you when you started to feel the divide and like which characters sort of are leaning towards which ideology and you're like oh this feels like a telltale game i need to pick which side do I align with? <laughs> and it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, I, and it, it really was that you're a hundred percent right. I was sitting there going like, Oh, well, technically the characters that have been billed as the, the great villains of this aren't actually, they're all kind of just as bad. And that's mm. kind of the point of the boys is it's like the fact that butcher is, is not actually really a, a good guy. He's the protagonist. He's like this obsessive person. That's rage is basically, fueling him down this rabbit hole yeah. um and that you know that leads to is it what was it, zach is it zach quaid no jack quaid's jack character quaid, yeah character huey? of it's huey. huey yep um being that sort of he is the the embodiment of good and obviously mm-hmm. watching his slow corruption over the the course of the show has been really important um well there's that aspect in the boys of like the impossibility of the, the people that we feel are unjust and have too much power what will it take to strip them of their power? And by the third season, without getting too spoilery, you know, these characters that are sort of the underdogs that don't have powers start to get access to certain powers that, you know, again, it's like the... the what, what's the quote? The Dark Knight quote. You know, oh my God, how am I going to butcher the Dark Knight? Oh, I think you're about to butcher the Dark Knight. This is insane. You know, the- um... Oh my God, a hero Which, until you uh, oh, live long enough to become the villain. villain Jesus, yeah. that's you insane. Saved it. You saved. I it. saved. I hope. I, I hope I did. But you know what I mean. Like, there's that element always at play. And when I started with Gen V, and and for those who don't know, this is essentially the um, Sky High Hunger Games version of the boys that takes place in university. Um, I was sort of yeah. I was trying to find that driving question. Like, I guess. There's that Starlight-esque arc that Marie's going through. They even call her Black Starlight at one point, yeah. which I it was quite funny. Um, that gets a little muddled, this idea of... You know, she's got this guilt, and she really wants to prove herself as a real superhero. And in this world, we've established in both the boys and this show that it's almost impossible to do that without becoming unscathed by the, the corporism that surrounds. And yeah, I just I thought a lot of that was really interesting, but I agree, it takes a while to pay off and I'm glad I finished the season before we recorded today I'm glad you did too because and I'm glad that I actually had an opinion last week and sure aren't remedying it but almost consolidating a little like it's that thing where yes I do think that the show at the really at that midpoint that move from episode four to five really starts to for me find a bit of pace and um we start to get a little bit more intrigued and we start to explore the intricacies of characters a little bit more. However, I really think that if this show was, and this is a thing and we, like I was saying even last week on it. And even as I'm watching invincible, the animated show, which is sort of like the animated boys in terms of its violence and it's critique of superhero. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Um, we forget how long things took in those early seasons. Like, the first, I mean, I'm not going to spoil so much of the later seasons of The Boys, but the whole mm. end of the first season is the fact that Elizabeth Shue's character gets killed. Mm. Like, that's that's a big moment yeah. in that first season. And, I mean, if you think about the opening episodes, like we said, we talked about the opening uh, sequence and being how important that was, but mm. even just the introduction to, like you said, the Huey-Butcher dynamic and them having to kill 
translucent. Yeah. Yeah, um, I saw the name. I was like, oh, that's what we were... Uh, yeah, because we forgot last yeah. week. Translucent. And the fact that his, 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 his son <laughs> is in this was great. Um, oh, but it's that really cool sort of... Um, that takes like three episodes. It's like the Breaking Bad moment when they kill mm-hmm. uh, Crazy, Crazy Eight, Eight and, yeah. and his... Emilio. Emilio. Um, and having that that be the first four or five episodes of the show... Sure, is, taking its time with that. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that That obviously as the show escalates, things start to move quicker and by season five of Breaking Bad, we are actually doing proper jumps in time almost yeah. or at least like things are things happening. Things are propelling such an incredible pace. Yeah, it's that it's, exponential it's curve. It, yeah. Um, and the boys is the same. Like obviously you look at that finale, but it's like, it was like little things like the flight... Um, arc and that whole that oh, whole yeah, yeah, thing yeah. and obviously exposing the, the X-ray homel- mode in Prime is so useful because I've forgotten so many of those little details about the boys and the X-ray thing gives you all the trivia that just reminds you of all the this connects to this episode of the boy and I was like oh of course yes right very very useful yeah and I would have loved to have seen almost two seasons of Gen V to uh, okay so even just push out um maybe what we're building just so we get a little bit more of that culture i mean we sort of understand a little bit more of like we said like i would like to have seen the marie monroe tries to do uni right story for a little oh, bit out a little longer a bef- little bit longer before okay. events kind of sort of happen um and even just exploring the the characters a little bit more i don't know if it would work maybe maybe even just having 12 episodes instead of eight maybe just giving it a little bit more padding i don't know right yeah, Not even yeah. padding just like depth of characters like there are characters like um jordan that feel mm. quite undercooked or they're they're almost like their arc is so overt there doesn't really feel to be too much subtext there even in episodes where they explore mm. a little bit more of the backstory that there just isn't enough there. Right. Um, I, I was I, pretty... Because I was I was sort of looking out for that, like you said last week, and I thought, I thought the majority of the characters, I was like, a lot of this is explored and not... Because you, you don't want to explore it to the point where the whole, like, irreverence and the violence of the show is lost, where it, if one of them just explodes randomly, that it's not funny... I almost think like that's the balance they may be trying to strike there. Mm, that's and interesting. And I, I did read a thing. I shouldn't say it, but I thought I got spoiled that essentially one of the main main characters just gets killed by Homelander, and that doesn't happen at all in the season. I can understand where that rumor came from. Maybe they clicked off a few minutes before the last episode actually ended. But um, I, I kind of thought a lot of the time, like, oh, it's because they're going to kill off some of these characters very brutally. Maybe that's why they're holding back a little on the on the arcs and the emotional exploring the emotional turmoils mm-hmm. of their powers but that being said I was pretty satisfied with like the exploration of Jordan um obviously Kate who I, I I'm very curious what they do with her character in season 2 but that's the other thing is well I don't think there is going to be a season 2 I think it's what I, it's, I assume that's kind of why they unraveled the entire mystery in 8 episodes and one and done is yeah. you're right I think that might be it and I think we're only going to get one more you know I've from talking with people but I also kind of makes sense i think we're only going to get one more season of the boys yeah um, if they can tie the boys season four into gen v I, where like I, the character stuff is a, yeah. a little bit tied in a bow then i'm happy with that I that think makes sense the ending very much indicates that they are going to play a role hmm. all six of the ensemble characters okay. are going to play a role in what happens next i think every i mean 
everything in the show indicates that that is going to be just straight into season four. That's what's going to. Yeah, I think that they've yeah, now said the runners too. have said it takes season four takes place days after the end of that season. Cool. So, and I like the idea of everything that's unraveled at this at, at God U is going to be a big. Like, it's not going to get swept under the rug, so the brother show can get back to its story. I li- I like the idea of it all potentially merging together. Yeah, but then if, if you look at the end of season three of the boys, a lot of those characters don't actually have too much left to do in terms right. of their arcs. Sure. It's it's very much like a, a last season of Game of Thrones or a, mm. or even an end of season four for Breaking Bad, where it's like. And now, blowback. Let's see yeah, what happens. Yeah. All the and, pieces are in place. And I remember with season three of The Boys, I remember thinking, like, oh, like, I, w- I thought more of them would die. I was like, I was pretty sure A-Train would be dead by now. Maybe even Maeve would be dead by now. And like you said, either they're cooking up some big final showdowns with them involved or or is it going to start to stagnate? Are, they, yeah. are, they, are these characters surviving too long, frankly? I don't know. I'm very curious where they take it, but I I did enjoy Gen V for that and the whole you know like okay let's look at all this messed up material but from a sort of a late teen perspective which I thought was quite fun like uh, one of the sex scenes in the first episode I thought was hilarious and um, like just like the drunken parties they go on and the, yeah, I would the have Rufy liked to... episode was quite clever. I thought that was that that was kind of my turning point because right. they they turned a funny concept also into like that deeper and it plays into the narrative in um, a surprising way. I liked a little... I, I honestly... It would have been cool to see a little bit more of the... Like I said, the exploration of, of how this the, the ranking system works. And, and obviously... Yeah. Or even though it's a phallic display of, of arbitrary, <laughs> like, bull, that obviously... Yeah. They're, they're I, I guess that's up. the joke, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, oh, it's basically like the Twitter trending button. Yeah. Whereas no one really knows what's dictating that. But it's it just inter- kind of exists. Yeah, it's yeah. That, it's, but it's then why do characters put so much value on it? Because they're almost self-aware of its arbitrary nature. Yeah. Um, I think if they made it a bit more obvious, the social media... And there's that all in there. Like, obviously, yeah. um, what's her name? Emma's, like, eating disorder gets outed on a, on a live stream. and There's stuff like that in there. But if they made that ranking system more clearly like oh this is this social media platform if they kind of made that more obvious and the way it worked i think it could have worked better Mm. but like you said it kind of like i i it wasn't even sky high i think it is the hunger games because there is that publicity side of it where they're like it's not even about who wins in the hunger games it's more so who's the most popular in the hunger games i'm glad you talked about the hunger games oh did you see the new one no but i burned through the four the (laughs) I, I did rewatch. I rewatched all of the Hunger Games films. Excellent. I was debating it because me and Kirsty want to see the new one. Mm-hmm. Her students are telling her you have to see it. You have to see it. Um, and I think we're both sort of like, oh, it's fine because it's a prequel. But I still like. I'm with you. I haven't seen those films in a long time. I would love to rewatch them. Yeah. I was really. I'm. And you know what? I sat down after Saturday, which was my birthday. But very nice. Um, as we Happy talked birthday. about previous. Uh, um, and was feeling a little, uh, little uh, hazy, okay. um, but I figured, <laughs> what a day to watch all four of these films. That I have not seen any of them since they've came out. Like I've watched all of them Neither. once, never yeah. seen them more than once. I remember not liking the last one much, but I, I also, and I think I told the story last week that when I read the book for the last one, is a Mockingjay. Yes, I was so sick I was literally throwing up into the pages of the book while I was reading it so that could have had a psychological oh, throw that effect book out. <laughs> actually yeah no I think I borrowed it from the library's sake 
even think I owned it. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, that's okay, so well, you know what? Guess what? You were right. Even sick, you was right. Um, okay, because okay, and I do like. Um, we'll stick with the segue with Gen V, but like the intricacies, particularly in the first film, they go through the entire Hunger Games process in the first film. Okay. Um, and I remember... Because that's this, like half the film is like before the games even start. Yeah, the, the, the games way. are literally the midpoint yeah. of it. And it's the same... The narrative is the exact same in the second one in terms of the midpoint is when you're now in the... Sure. Uh, you're in the Hunger Game. But what I found really interesting... The Discord button. The, <laughs> the, first, <laughs> the first film in particular, I was like watching it. I was like, oh, I wonder if this... How I feel about this film... Um, because I remember watching it in the cinema and going, oh, that was like a really tight 90. It's not tight. It, it's not 90. It's two hours 20, which I was blown Oof. away by. Um, unless there's become an extended cut, but it didn't list any extended no, cut No, I think aspect, it was always like that. Which is it was never like this brisk 90-minute film. It was always it was a fantasy 90. epic. It's, it's ironic because we talked about Harry Potter and Narnia and all these things. Like Hunger Games sort of started... At the time when all these other fantasy films were ending. Yeah. It kind of, we got into the dystopian age with all the other... Yeah, the Allegiance. Allegiance. And Maze Runner. Yep, exactly. It was the dystopian genre, uh, novel genre that, mm. that took off. Correct, And yeah. um, this was obviously probably the most... Well, definitely the most successful out of the ones mm. we just mentioned, um, particularly because of what most people consider the first two films being really solid. And to be honest, I watched this first film, and it, the first thing that was interesting was... I was surprised at um, the district one. The boy that lives to the end mm. is Alexander Ludwig, who is in Heels, which I've talked about on the show. Oh. And he also plays one of the um, Ragnar's son in Vikings. Oh, so just, that's funny. I didn't pick up on that because he looks so young in this. Sure. But yeah. I was like, that's Alexander Ludwig. Like, I was just like, <laughs> blew me away. Um, but because um, he's not got a a Viking accent, which is what I know him as the most mm, as. Um, yes. But what's quite interesting was the first film is like all handheld. Like, oh, the camera work. It's like shaky. And I mean like shaky. Like I'm watching it. I'm like, I think I'm getting a little sick watching this film. <laughs> it's like... Mo- I feel like and, I do remember that. And yeah. the beauty of watching all four of these, and I, I look, I, I do think binging can have a, a, a counterproductive measure. Sure, of but course. how sterilized the films went over time. It almost felt like by the time I they I think wa- that there was a different director for the first one, and then the guy who directed the new one directed Catching Fire, Mockingjay, one end. Yeah, you might be right. So I'll- I think you're just getting the stylistically very different take from the first. And as much like Twilight, it's exactly like Twilight. I mean, Twilight had more directors, but the first one being stylistically so different from the others, more sterile, exactly like you, you put it. So yeah, yeah I will. I will mention before we move yeah, on right. completely from Gen V because you mentioned the camera work. Um, first off, still, still a great example of like quote unquote low budget VFX and how great it can look in a in a television landscape. But I know I noticed this seek, and tell me if you notice this too. The, almost every shot, especially like the coverage, um, you know, like shot reverse shot, it must have been shot at like f two point eight or uh, lower. Because it was all such shallow focus, shallow mm. depth of field. And it just, I started noticing it and it really started bothering me. It was like every single scene, either a medium or a medium close up, or I don't it know. It felt why. a bit, bit plain. It felt anti cinematic. Yeah. Which I think is something we've only really figured in the last few years. Because, you know, I mean, we're talking about 
we shot all of Cradle on a, yes. I think, a 2.8 lens and micro four-thirds, sure, but like the sh- very, very shallow depth of field, which I think works for what we did because so so much of the lights, there were a lot of neon lights and there was a cinema verite, so you're getting yeah. interesting uh, different shades of colours in the background that are all blurred, but for something like Gen V, where it's like, okay, there's like buildings and there's like extras walking around in daylight and it's all blurred... And it yeah. makes it just look kind of anti-cinema. I just noticed, I just wanted to point that out because I no, noticed that. No, I think that's a really good pickup. I, I I think what we were trying to do with Cradle, yeah, was push that gritty realism. That was mm. always there, that underlining. This is like a murky kind of... Uh, uh, we wanted to... I mean, we put a lot of different sort of ideas and colour into it too. Mm. And, and it was definitely meant to be very gritty and very real. And, and that's... Uh, isn't it really interesting? I thought there were points where it felt like that compared to the the boys show it felt like the production value was kind of a tier below and i'm sure it was a slightly cheaper show to make but even the way like, it is a shot like yeah yeah is that yeah kind of comes across that way maybe yeah. that like you said it's that counter cinematic feeling but yeah, yeah so I, I and you're 100 percent right gary ross directed the first hunger games and yep. then francis lawrence for the yeah, other three the, all of them yeah um and that does show because there is a there is a difference between the way that the first film goes and the first film so even the non-action scenes are like kind of shaky and just everything okay wow like it was i i've never been like got motion sickness from a film and i I imagine because of the context when i was watching it that probably didn't help (laughs) um no but um it was like i was watching it and was like this does this film have a tripod at any point? Like yeah, the, um, the gift that crew should have gifted the director a tripod. Yeah. <laughs> um, or one of those uh, rulers that has like the bubble in it. That seems oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but no, it, well, that's it. Yeah. The tilt or a gimbal. Um, but it was quite funny because I was watching it and I was like, wow, this is like, but it goes into such detail of like you said, the rating system, the sponsor. One thing I found quite funny was that, Hamish, who's Woody Harrelson's character. Yeah. Hamish, sorry. I remember loving him to death. Very likable. Well, it's a likable Woody Harrelson performance. Yeah. Um, and Gives it to you straight. What, one of the funniest things about the first film is they're like, oh, it's all about getting sponsors and being likable and getting sponsors. The two times Katniss gets sponsor support are both from Hamish. Like, they're <laughs> like little parcels that have got a name in it. I don't really understand how that works because it's like, I always thought it was like meant to be a random Joe that sends you stuff. But... Right. Um, there are there are things I liked. So across all of the films, I do think Mockingjay Part One is is laughably boring. Like okay. it is, it is propaganda the film, and <laughs> and no matter how many big names you throw at it with with Julianne Moore and and obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman in one of his la- I think his last role. Yeah, I think so. You're right. Um, to the point where I think he gets the Paul Walker treatment in in part two, where he gets the he had a bit of CGI face oh, double okay. stuff happening. Wasn't there something in the credits like a title? No, they didn't do that. I couldn't I mean I didn't watch like the full credits. Sure, part, sure, sure, but, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I remember that. in part two there is or he's in cred- like and to be fair he's not in the second half of the film at all like it's just I remember him barely being in that last yeah. one yeah um, and that's quite I mean look that is what it is you can't really do much about that from a filmic point of view I don't think his character actually offers that much dimension anyway sure um, I think that look I think that the first two films are, are really really re- quite solid uh, I wouldn't say they're great but mm. 
I was watching the first one and think, oh, this is a really good film that has a lot of interesting aspects to it. I think Donald Sutherland's uh, Snow is is just great. Like, mm. he is... But he's evil, and he's so evil. I'm so <laughs> curious, because he's obviously the main, like, sort of subject of the prequel. Um, so I'm really curious what, like, a younger Snow looks like in that context. But the other thing as well, I read, I read a surprisingly positive review about the new one, and I think it essentially said they, they liked this one better than the old one because the old ones kind of had to wedge a happy ending into a very dystopian, yeah. gloomy sort of aesthetic and, and um, like, uh, just the thematic overbearing nature of it. Um, while, as a prequel, it can have its downer ending. It can sort of end on this note of, like, there's still so much repression left to be had in this society. So I'm e- curious about that aspect of the new one. The ending's so clunky. Like mm. they have a they literally have a Game of Thrones esque moment where they're all sitting around a table, basically, uh, like, what do we do now? And it's like it was so clear like by that point that like the Julianne Moore character of being like, oh, I'm gonna be an interim president and it's mm. like everyone knows where this is going and <laughs> yet still half of the characters, despite being put through literal hell go yeah like let's do another hunger games like let's do it because it's it's all of the capital people now and you sort of sit there and you're like even katniss because she gets mm-hmm. to assassinate snow and i know she yeah. like shoots um uh, julianne moore's character yeah. too but it's quite hilarious because it's like one of those moments where you just sort of like this is so silly like mm. um and the i don't know that it's. I'm guessing the ending, like the happy ending they're referring to, is like, oh, there's a baby now, so it's ha- it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> which I don't think is necessarily the I, case. I, but... I mean, I haven't read the books, and I whenever someone interjects and goes, oh, well, the books better, or they explain things better, it's like, yeah, okay, fine, but but I, I didn't like the I, book either when I read it. But so it's in isolation, isn't it? It, I, it almost like it didn't quite know where to go with it. It was all, like those Mockingjay films, in particular, part one is kind of hilarious because it really is two hours of the the big thing is rescuing peter from the capital that's right yeah because um, he goes missing at the end of the second one is that what it is they don't rescue him basically yeah, yeah it's yeah, captured yeah. but it's, okay. it's I remember quite fragments of the story it's mostly the mostly it's just a film about cultivating her mocking jay propaganda image and mm. and it's just not interesting at all like okay. it, it doesn't it almost like would have benefited from being more like a serialized format in a movie context. It's it's just such a long two they hours. Might, they might try it. They might try that. Honestly. Although I think the director did come out and say he regretted making Mockingjay a two-parter film. It was very clearly like the hype at the time to do that. Yeah, well, and just, it, the story did not serve having two feature-length films. Just it's just yeah. Because the funny thing is, you almost the end of your first act is just. Uh, rescuing like or, or even rescuing peter in the opening 10 minutes like the first the the basically the finale of the film like a return of get, the jedi type thing yeah get like the rescue out of the way get it out of the way and have his character be scarred or hijacked as he is mm. in the film and then have that repairing relationship occur um over time because it just it is it's such an empty film that doesn't mm. really offer anything it just prolongs the gale peter katniss love triangle which is so dead in the water and obvious by (laughs) like by the end of the first act of the second film it's like so obvious she's only going to have eyes for peter or she's not going to have eyes for anyone Mm. and gale is such a 
he's just wet lettuce as a character <laughs> and he's fine it's, it's funny you saying all this it kind of makes me want to watch it again yeah. <laughs> knowing that I'm going to enjoy quite a lot of the, the I'm going to call it the trilogy why not yeah. Um, but also knowing that there's going to be another giant portion of the trilogy I'm not going to enjoy. It's so fascinating. For different reasons. The first film, yeah. it, to me, is just... It's the best one because it really is just... It's, an, it's a good arc. Mm. And the, the weight of death in it is is so good. Like, I mean, I do think there are good deaths in, in, in Mockingjay, I guess. But there are also like deaths like, oh, well, these are characters we've built up just to be killed off, almost, it feels yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas in the first film, you know, like, the Rue death... I don't think the Rue death is the best death in the entire trilogy. Like, mm. when she dies. Because that's the moment... I love that we're spoiling the ever-living shit out of The Hunger Games. It's ten years Seriously. old! I know, I know. I just love it if you just accepted it. Um, <laughs> and her death is just like, so... It is every character that dies in the whole series. <laughs> yeah. Whereas it's kind of hilarious in the second one, because the second one is, like, half of the... Half of the competitors are on Katniss's side so it's not even really like it's a bit awkward there yeah, when it's going to be one 1v1 <laughs> whereas like in the first one there's that genuine fear aspect mm. and survival aspect which is so good yeah like i that opening sequence when the when the countdown hits zero and they're all sprinting and it's just you're, silent you're excited yeah it's it's perfect mm. it's like genuinely scary um and they do a really good moment in the second one when um I think his name's Sinode. He gets like beaten up while she's like in the elevator, and she's like oh, freaking yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. And we've yeah. already seen a lot of her PTSD already exists. Mm. So her acting in that, and I'm not a Jennifer Lawrence fan, but I do think her performances are, are pretty solid mm. um, through these films. It's hilarious how short Peter is in comparison. <laughs> to it really is. It's like one of those. They didn't like, do much. The, they didn't give him an Apple box to work. Yeah, it's like the or... Tom Cruise effect where it's like. <laughs> It's hilarious looking at like the shots of people trying to make Tom Cruise look taller than what. What are you is. saying about short guys, Zeke? What are you saying? <laughs> uh, um, just don't laugh. cast a girl that's nearly six foot. Like that's what I would next, say. Next to cast it. a girl that's a short. tiny man. Um, <laughs> good though. There are good. Fair there enough. are good moments over all four of the. Well, three of the four. Uh, there's probably good moments in Mockingjay one too. But reckon, yeah, I think I could find one or two in there, but. Yeah, those I mean, are the ones I'm more. I'm excited to rewatch the first two, but I'm more curious to rewatch the last two because I'm just like, because I was, I was, how just, bad are these really? I'm curious because I, I, I'm sure they are. They just have moments where they don't really make sense. Like the Mockingjay Part Two, there's a moment where there's these, they call them, I think, mutts, but they're like I zombies think mutts, yeah. with no eyes, but they don't explain where they come from. What are they? Mm. Um, and I find that interesting because so, you know you have so much time to like conceive these things you mean like the running time in the films well over the course of the film like how do you you just generated zombies kind of out of nowhere or these like animalistic fiend characters and it's like what are they like they fly now yeah (laughs) and you're just sort of like because it's like in the first film there's a moment where like the dogs get released and there's a moment where they cut to them like creating this genetic sort of like Hound, but mm. you believe it because it's like it's just a genetically enhanced hound that yeah. they've made, and they've released it into the games. Or like the the tracker jacker, like they're just amped up hornets, yeah. and they say, "Oh, these are genetically modified things that will kill you." Um, and you're like, "Okay." And then there's a moment with the monkeys in the second one, so it's like all of these things are believable. And then there's zombies in the fourth one for right, or and they, they give up and, on and establishing you're sort of like, them. Okay, 
where did these come from they've just killed half of the cast and we, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna like it would have been better just seeing booby traps kill these like characters in like a saw-esque fashion um or at least make me understand what what are these things because mm. like have a two minute scene where you're like oh we shouldn't what? go underground there'll be these things yeah. what are these things because you know <laughs> Man, if, if Aragorn could say about Nazgul what a Nazgul, then we can all sit here and be like, can we get I a little bit... I was literally just thinking about Lord of the Rings, like how they establish all these different things and... And to defend the Maze Runner, the Maze Runner actually justifies all of its, like, monsters and stuff. They sure. take, like, two minutes to, like, sit there and be like, this is that, that monster yeah. that's been mechanically created. And you're like... I mean, I still think this is kind of lame, but at least I know what this is. <laughs> at least I didn't hate the first yeah. Maze Runner. That is a tight hundred minutes. That okay, one. I've never seen any of the Maze Runners. It's fine. I am. Um, I remember. You know, what? this is a little weird and a little sad now that I think about it. Because I mean, I mean, in high school, a bunch of my friends that were going to watch the second Maze Runner, and I think I just said like, no, I don't want to go and see it because I hadn't seen the first one. But then I went to the movie theater anyway, so when they all left after they finished, I was like, surprise, and we did something afterwards. Yeah. And I'm like, was that sad or was that not sad? I don't know. Mm. I didn't really bother. I wasn't like, oh, the guy <laughs> in the movie's about me. I just I just chose not to. I just I was like, oh, I'll catch him afterwards. So yeah. maybe it wasn't so what sad. What about you, Jake? Have you caught anything else? I've seen one other film, okay. and I, I'm still sticking to my, my true physique getting the uh, 10 films off my 100 film poster knocked out and I think I picked very well for this one I picked On the Waterfront okay 1954 first off shout out to SBS On Demand because when I went to double check this film was on SBS On Demand it said that there were 40 minutes left before it was being removed from the service I was like oh god so I immediately clicked play and sure enough I got through the entire film with no issues and once the credits rolled, I hit refresh, then it disappeared. But uh, shout out to SBS On Demand for not cutting out my uh, <laughs> my Very stream. Nice. So it was really nice of him. But no, um, it's a Marlon Brando film. He's much younger in this film. He plays Terry, who's um, sort of this like lost kid who's sort of torn between his devotion to this local mob. And there's like the whole labor leader situation going on as well. Um, and the, the guy, the main sort of leader there is Lee J. Cobb from 12 Angry Men. He is also equally fantastic in this film. And, yeah, it's just sort of this interesting exploration on, you know, him and his found family, but, the, you know, they're mobsters and crooks and they're doing the wrong thing. And um, he inadvertently gets this guy killed and he ends up sort of befriending and getting to a relationship with the sister who's going on her own sort of investigative journey to figure out you know who's truly she knows who's responsible for his death but sort of trying to get to the the root of it so to speak with mm. um yeah, yeah with with these mobsters and sort of this open secret that they're in charge of the union and and all of this so i thought it was a very interesting and it, it's shot black and white as well so it has a little bit of that nastar noir flair mm. to it um but i i really appreciated the story and and the arc that terry goes on as he sort of becomes increasingly aware of how disposable he is to this found family mobster uh, that he has. And as much as I would have loved to have seen a little more context about maybe like the backstory of like how did he kind of run in with these guys initially, yep. it's sort of all there in Marlon Brando's performance. Like you could see this lost kid who's just frustrated at the situation that he's found himself in after all these years. So I'll give the film points for that because it's all on him. Um, and as for Edie, the aforementioned sister... 
Eva Marie Saint. She's incredible in this film. And I, I'm not saying anything mind-blowing because she actually did win the Oscar for her role in this film, um, which I was pleasantly surprised to, to read about. But she just sort of has... I mean, she goes through all of these emotions, you know, the agony of losing the brother, the desperation of, of this investigation. She's fruitlessly chasing the reluctant love she sort of begins to develop for Terry and then the sort of the eventual betrayal that comes with that reveal and like all of this is sort of tunneled through this earnestness where I just sort of always believed her and always sort of rooted for her this whole time and I even thought I'm like this feels very Ray Seahorn-esque which I wrote in my little letterbox review but I was Mm. like this reminds me of Kim Wexler really does so I wonder if she sort of studied this role and this performance to especially the more intimate scenes with with Bob Odenkirk where she's sort of got a guard down that's the version of Kim that it reminds me of but I I really enjoyed all of these aspects even though there is sort of that that early 50s staple of when she finds out you know what happens she's obviously very upset and uh, all it takes is one big juicy fat kiss and all of a sudden she's (laughs) all is forgiven Zeke (laughs) when in doubt (laughs) when in doubt big smack kiss i love it so there's a little bit of that in there let's uh <laughs> i don't think it's a perfect film it doesn't hold up perfectly in that standpoint but no I, I thought it was a very interesting film about sort of uh overtaking the union and at its core to sort of <clears throat> going against the uh the mob to do the right thing when i say mob i'm mm. talking about like a mob of people as well that are sort of all afraid to stand up for their own survival yeah so to speak so all of that's in the film um, and even just, and we're, I mean, we're going to talk about the third man in a minute, but just the the use of the camera work, the pacing of it. It's very fast paced, but also has lots of really patient oneers. Um, very little, uh, very few like pans and tilts or camera movements. Um, even just there's scenes where you know the diegetic noise in the background sort of drains out the dialogue in really interesting, effective ways. Like there's just so many little things peppered throughout the film that I thought was so sort of um, sharp, I guess, in, in terms of the filmmaking, um, much like The Third Man we'll talk about in a minute. So, yeah, I was very impressed with On the Waterfront. Only eight um, to go? Yeah, well, well, seven now. Seven? Seven, yeah. How and, exciting. Um, I'm excited. Now, for next week's film, I, I'm pretty confident I know which one fits the bill in terms of large-scale uh, war stories. So mm. I think that, but it's going to get a bit hard, Zeke. Because some of the films we're, we've planned to talk about the next few weeks, I've got two Bond films in this list. <laughs> this is going to be a little tricky to to tie them together, Zeke. I don't know how I'm going to do it, um, but nevertheless, I'm very excited. I, I am very excited too. But Zeke, that's everything I've caught in the last week. Well, it is indeed time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching this week on the show, Zeke? We're watching the Third Man. I remember the old Vienna. Heard of Harry Lyme? Best friend I ever had. He's my kaput. Go home, Martins. You don't know what you're mixing in. As soon as I get to the bottom of this, I'll get the neck lane. You're wrong about Harry. You're wrong about everything. Come out, come out, whoever you are. Hey! 
never should have gone to the police, you know. Pop novelist Holly Martin travels to a shadowy post-war Vienna, only to find himself investigating the mysterious death of an old friend named Harry Lyme. Harry? <laughs> Harry Lyme. Harry Lyme. That is the winner great... of one Oscar, five nominations. and Oh, best uh, cinematography is what it won for? Oh. Surely. Oh, best cinematography. Hey, well done. Got nominated well for done, editing, too. director... Um, and then won the BAFTA award for best British film. No, that no, no, makes sense. <laughs> and that's uh, that's the accolades. Oh, grand grand prize at Cannes. Oh, excellent! Outstanding directorial achievement. It's kind of crazy how how long these institutions have sort of stood the test of time because we're talking about the late forties here. Yeah. So um, no, much appreciated there, but yes, the third man. I I think. I'm trying to distinguish what we said at the start of this episode and what we said in our separate recordings we did <laughs> before the episode, but mm-hmm. um, we first... Well, I first saw this film... Uh, I think it was episode 66 is when we both uh, reunited after the first wave of COVID in early 2020. Yes. Um, so I watched The Third Man amongst a bunch of other things there, and I didn't really say much about it on that episode unfortunately but we did say that we wanted to come back and do a proper episode on the third man so we finally done it Zeke here we are and um yeah I, this film I mean gosh it not only holds up from when I first saw it a few years ago it holds up from well from 1949 and, and well I'll start with this because I can talk about what I find really interesting and fascinating about this film um but I want to hear your sort of overall takeaway because like you said you've been familiar with this film for a long time and 10 years 10 years and it's one of the only films that you've given a 5 star rating on Letterboxd yep it's uh, one of the main reasons we decided to do this is it's pretty much one of the only ones left that we haven't covered extensively on this show yeah I think it's one of those films where you've got a lot that has going for it and I, I mean that in the sense that as a as a younger man watching this film, so you're you know you pitch you put yourself in the the shoes of being sixteen, seventeen, and, yeah, and you know obviously when you're at that age, the the selling point of watching a black and white film from nineteen forty nine is is not high. <laughs> you can't think of what and it I, is at that stage. Yeah. I had I had two media teachers, one in year eleven and then one in year twelve, and the one in year eleven was this. Uh, very um it was an elderly gentleman who was this he looked like santa claus he was a big burly man <laughs> with a beard and he was probably in his 50s or 60s and he was he was named mr smith um <laughs> his name mr smith that's awesome uh, mr anderson um but that yes. was my meeting teacher mr anderson <laughs> <laughs> we are in the matrix that's awesome um but I found it really interesting because he was the one who was obviously pushing and, and german expressionism has has been in the the scars of for, documentation for, and curriculum for god knows how sure. long but yeah. obviously as you said at the start of the show this 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 film did not pioneer the dutch tilt but it sure made it its trademark identity <laughs> um to it and sure, loved using it yeah um and that's really important because that became a massive uh, cornerstone of what you know fr- that french new wave noir film sort of movement that was a big part of the noir genre mm. um and it became iconoclastic because of films 
like this. You know, we've talked about other noir films on the type, which are flagship noir films in, in double identity. Mm, um, yes. But this film takes the Dutch tilt and just spams it. it just <laughs> um, spams it with the but mouse. It, but it is interesting because the geometry of the film mm. is so crucial in, yes. and that comes through the uh, the life of Vienna which let's be real I mean Vienna seems to get a lot of life in cinema um, <laughs> you know we've talked about Vienna in the in the contemporary through things like before um, sunrise but obviously yeah. this was the contemporary of the day this post-war Europe um, and well, I think before sunrise has very specific odes in it to the Vienna not just Vienna but the Vienna of this film yeah uh, in that they take the same Ferris wheel. And I, I'm not sure that if the third man didn't exist, that they would even do that in well, Before why Sunrise. Why go to Vienna? Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, I think I think there's a lot of inspiration there from yeah. this film. Um, and it is quite interesting because, yeah, the like you said, you've just brought up the Ferris wheel, which is an iconic scene of, of power and, and balance. And, mm. um, but, you know, we have everything. There are signature traits of what became known as the noir genre in this film, this protagonist that's not exactly likable or successful in what they're doing and they're kind of kind of a bit of a loser mm. um and their antagonist is the more interesting um intelligent and and savvy um counterpart um yeah. there's the mystery aspect which is more traditional to our crime thrillers but it, then it gets subverted with like you said the midpoint reveal of of Harry still being alive. Mm. Um, what an absolute phenomenal scene that yeah. is as well. Just um, that reveal. It's a great gateway film into the idea of who is Orson Welles. Mm. I think that is such a, you know, an important name in cinema. Um, just a name in media, obviously, yeah. even from a radio broadcast background. And it's a name that, you know gets thrown around a lot but if you're a young man you know you're 15 16 and and you've heard this name before but you don't really understand it and then you watch this film and although like we you know we're going to talk about it's a carol reed directed film there's just mm. a, a trademark presence that um wells has on screen and just in his execution that feels so uh just immaculate and enthralling. That's the thing, because you got like you got Joseph Cotton in the lead. Everyone talks about uh, the, you know the cinematography, rabid Casca, uh, the music from Anton Karaz. Like uh, those are all iconic elements of this film. You can't take away, and yet it is still it's the Orson Welles film. Like that's the yet power got, he, he has <laughs> in this film, not in the story as well as the context of the making of the film. Yeah, and then it's apparently incredible. he was only on set for like a week. <laughs> So it's almost like a mythos, isn't it? It's it kind this, of is, yeah. It's this mythological presence that he just commands. Well, his, his involvement is mythological in the sense that no one can really today tell you to what extent he was involved in the writing of the film and the direction of the film. and like it, It's sort of this big mystery. And I, I don't know which way I lean one way or the other. I mean, we can even go as recently as, like, don't worry, darling, in terms of the like who directed what. And that that sort of debate there, and I'm not going to compare this film to that's Don't right. Worry, Darling. That's the spin-off show. That's the spin-off show for us. Yeah, that'll be the spin-off. It'll be an investigative show. Guessing who directed what? <laughs> who actually directed X? <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. No, so you're right. Like the the mythological aspect of this film, and again, it's with it's embedded into the story as well because the name Harry Lyme is said so many times. And, and the whole story is completely centered around this character that until 
almost two-thirds of the way into the narrative we don't even realize is alive or is a, yeah. is a playing factor in this whole thing and and that's the thing because i'm i'm sort of like there's the mystery element and the characters and like that's that's all sort of serves the genre like we said there's a very much a neo a, a neo noir or not sorry not even what am i saying neo noir it's a very much just a noir detective classic and like you said there's elements of subversion in the narrative but to borrow those i mean that's what really struck out to me watching this film is to borrow you know all of these ideas from german expressionism and and like yeah we made fun of the dutch tilt but the thing is the use of shadows in this film is Mm. also so incredibly important and i know i know a big part of german expressionism that's not it's not done one for one in this film is the idea of like the very strange uh, architecture and the um, the structures and the sets that are all very wonky, wacky shapes, um, which this film doesn't really do to the same extent as maybe some other previews, like maybe Metropolis, for example. But what it does do, and especially in the context of a post-war Vienna, which I think is very important to the story, is that not only is Vienna a character in, in the nighttime streets and just the sound of, like, is it like cobblestone, would yeah. you call it, that they're, they're all walking across, but then all the wreckage all the buildings that have been bombed and turned into rubble, or all the staircases that are half broken and torn apart that the characters have to navigate through. Like, that's all, like, its own version of German Expressionism architecture and shapes. Yeah. and it, it, So it's taking all those elements and, and reinventing them in interesting ways. And it's so interesting because, you know, you, you, you think about when, like you said, when they're setting up this film, it almost takes a, a documentary-esque introduction where mm. it's explaining the dynamics and... And the grace, uh, the dynamics of Vienna being split into four districts, and and the, yeah, that occupational yeah. aspect, and the fact that a lot of them have turned to like petty crime and corruption because it's the only way really they can make ends meet. And there's this real negative uh, depiction of hope and honesty and all of these values that mm. you know, if you you know look at what cinema had been in the last 10 or 15 years, a lot of it was like, you know, we're coming from a Chaplin era where yeah, there yeah. is comment, like social commentary. Sure. But there's the optimism. There's the city lights of it all. And there's the, it's all presented through this fun, dancey lens. Yeah. yeah. And then even the films that are set in more dire settings, like you're gone with the winds and stuff still have that, almost that romantic, uh, ethereal presence to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, and this is that gritty realism post world war two that we're really seeing unfold. And, Obviously, this film takes shape very similar to Casablanca in its its contemporary relevancy. The fact that it is a, a time and place film. Yeah, the Third yeah. Man does not exist outside of 1949 Vienna, and that comes back to like you said, this the fact that characters are interacting with the rubble when they're making great escapes. They're having to shuffle up and down the rubble, which was 100% probably just there and they filmed around it. Like, it's not a... It doesn't feel... Like, it doesn't have that feeling of this was in a studio or a fake created. It's probably still as worn-torn the year they shot it because it would have probably been shot in 47, 48. Yeah, no, exactly. So, like like you said, thematically and even just, like, visually, we're talking about something that's very current in its time. Um, Yeah, like much much like Casablanca. And, And I think if you did a film like this today... It's interesting because I'm trying to think what what you would do. You you, know, you would probably replicate the black and white. You mm. but then but then right off the bat that that first creative decision of we're going to retain the black and white. It's like okay, well now you're just trying to recreate what once was. 
Mm. Not trying to make something different. You're trying to recreate. Like you said, this is almost like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. In, in that sense. So, yeah, but I, I was just blown away by all the way they use the architecture and they create shapes using those things. But even just... Um, and again, the excessive use of Dutch children, not even just in wide angles, but in the coverage. And, you know, you have these two characters. Uh, this is just after the funeral where they're, they're, they're smoking like chimneys and the smoke is sort of... Uh, it's filling the entire frame with smoke. It's just so atmospheric. Yeah. There's so much natural framing in this and, mm. and, and, and uh, forcing uh, dirty frames. You know, we, we talked about the Dutch tilts, but the the, the dirty frames, the... the use of like i said geometry in the space and the fact that there's there's a ridiculous amount of leading lines in this film it's yeah, like it's yeah. constantly pushing towards uh an end off screen and it's always like characters are either moving off screen into it or out of it and always exiting like a left or a right but it's that use of of blocking and space particularly you know in those street scenes where there's always these like we're always in Holly's perspective we always feel like we're always catching up yeah to you know his confusion his 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 disorientation the fact that he feels lost in the world it's not just the Dutch tilts but it's the fact that you know when he's like walking the streets with Anna it starts off screen or when he's chasing after Harry mm. he's literally chasing a shadow yes yeah running off like it's all off screen it's that such an interesting perspective shot the one that even, I think it's literally one or two shots after that shot you just mentioned when he runs out in sort of that open field of Vienna and like he's disappeared where, where is Harry gone mm. And but even just like the almost the smugness not just of the character but of the director to put his little hiding space right in the centre of the frame and, and have our have our protagonist sort of brush against it and, and use it as like a point of reference but not know to go inside it mm. And that's where we enter. Even breaks the one eighty rule in that sequence. Oh yeah, yeah. Which sort of adds that you know that forcing of that convention break really does just actively reinforce that the dis the disorientation. Yeah, of of that scene. Holly's just clueless. Well, let's talk about Holly. (laughs) (laughs) I think. Look, I mean, there almost is an argument, and he's not. Like by the end of the story, he has actively made decisions that have altered the way things are played out. So he's not like a passive character, so mm. to speak, even though it sometimes it feels like it because he, he does feel kind of useless in so many <laughs> situations. But what I thought was so interesting is... and uh, So let's talk about the fact that he's an author. And uh, to what extent is he sort of self-obsessed with his own work? Because he mentions it a lot at the start of the film. Mm. And he really enjoys talking with people that are familiar with his work. And he's always suggesting, have you read this? Have you read that? And I thought it was interesting they they made it clear that he's written a lot of the like the Western novels, particularly because he almost feels like a Western protagonist in this film, that he sort of shows up in this place, this established place full of uh, crime and, and, and like the seedy underbelly feeling to it, and that he comes in out of nowhere, or the man with no name, and sort mm. of uh, forces change amongst people. So I got, I got that little comparison there, a little Western type protagonist but what I love is that by the time we get to the bookstore which is a funny little scene where he's sort of like dragged to it uh, almost unknowingly and he's answering the Q&A that and he literally has the line I'm too far along with the book which is obviously the analogy I'm far I'm far too into the investigation to give up now mm. and that's what my soul focuses so I, I feel like the film did make a point of showing that he was someone a little self-obsessed maybe at first but too intrigued by the mystery to 
to not delve deeper and find out the truth of the matter. What what was your feelings on Holly otherwise? I think, it, I mean, like I said, he's that embodiment of now what we consider the traditional protagonist in, in film noir in this... Mm. Um, he is a... Stubborn. <laughs> stubborn, um, stubborn kind of protagonist that's incredibly flawed in terms of you know he probably drinks too much and he's you know like he he's a novelist but he's a novelist of these what is considered that lowbrow literature sure yeah um of, of the time but also his sheer almost borderline arrogance towards anna in terms of um sort of the object of desire mm. obviously as, as this character that's caught between Harry and, and, and Holly, Holly, but mm. very, but it's kind of, when I say caught between it, like I said, it's equivalent to the Peter Gale romance in the Hunger <laughs> Games, in the sense it's a one, it's a one track show. Yeah, um, exactly. The, the, the third, the triangle, the pointy end of the triangle isn't as much of a factor in here. It's more the emotion yeah, behind well, his supposed passing. Yeah, it's that mis- yeah, but it's also the misconception that Holly thinks that Anna is, sees him in the way that Holly feels inclined to do so. And sure. Um, when it was very clear, she was pretty clear pretty early on of her um, affirmation towards Harry and, and mm. the ideologies of Harry. And um, I think that, you know, and I'm, we're not going to dive in, obviously, to the, the power of that last shot, but it's it comes back to sort of how the, the, the film sort of comes to that climactic scene. Holly is simply an accessory mm. um, used to sucker harry in but is kind of nothing more than uh, being used pretty much the whole time and, and is always whether it's by anna or whether it's by the police mm. or whether it's by harry um um or harry's confidants the ones who look after you know with the, yeah, yeah. Um, he's always kind of chasing himself and and you don't really feel sorry for him more as he's he feels like a, no because there's a sense of righteousness in there yeah and I think almost, like I said, that Western thing of like entering the dangerous territory, I think the thing I was thinking of is disturbing the status quo. Like, he kind of almost inadvertently does that, you, because you're right, he's sort of just used as a pawn by all the other players in in this larger yeah. game that he's sort of stumbled into. But I, I like the the further isolation he, he faces because he's he's penniless, so there's times where he, he wants to use his money and he can't, or... There's times when he can't understand what the locals are even saying. There's like that, yeah. that communication barrier he has to break through. Um, but then that's extended to the audience because there's all these shots. I mean, it starts at the funeral where you're getting these glances and you just kind of know something's off kilt. Mm. Um, not just the camera, but the atmosphere, so to speak. Uh, and even there's a later scene where they're walking through Vienna and, and we're getting... The, you know, there's the guy that's sort of, I think, mopping the floor and there's a girl cleaning the glass window and there's just like, just those like little cutaways and I think that's why the editing was so appreciated as well is just something as simple as cutting away to these reactions yes. to just like make you feel so uncomfortable. Like, man, I, I, I as a protagonist, I'm feeling encroached by my surroundings. I'm getting sort of cornered and yeah. not, not knowing how or why I need to defend myself right now. Yeah, and, and you know, we've, we've talked about the Dutch tilts, but we've also, and I've talked a little, you know, we've talked a bit about, like you said, the depth in the frame and, and that sort of claustrophobia, and that comes yep. back to that natural framing. But it also comes back to something as, as contextual as the aspect ratio. I mean... Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Three um, by four, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a very standard, so. very almost square. Um, I don't think it's three by four. 
We might be close to three by four. I think it's closer to maybe one by it, one. It might be one by one. I'm not too um, sure. I, I think check. it's a standard square, but I'll, I'll just check that. But it, that also helps with that sort of claustrophobia, like you said. Um, That's true, yeah, because you're not getting the widescreen epics of, of other films that around this time did exist, the widescreen experience, but... Um, 1.33 by 1. So almost Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, not 3 by 4. That's that sort of... Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the Ethan Hawke film I'm thinking of? First Reformed, almost that-esque. Oh, a little A24-esque. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but obviously, now, we know that's obviously a part of the time, but at the same time, that... I feel like that would have been a choice, though. There is that working within that medium and mm-hmm. what trying to... That does create emphasis, like you said, on the on the vertical lines in particular and then also creates that claustrophobia a little bit more. I don't think this film is would be nearly as impactful if it was shot in a 2.35 by 1. No, and I think what you would get, the wider you go, that these wides of Vienna where he's sort of like this, you know, uh, to quote Orson Welles, like a dot within the wider frame. I think the wider you go, the more it starts to look like, like and not to say this film isn't beautiful, but it might become too beautiful to not feel the danger. Yeah, and and I think you're right. It sort of encroached just enough the frame that whenever he's running in a circle, it, it always feels dangerous. It always feels like he's surrounded, and yeah. um, so I think you're right. They nailed the aspect ratio. Yeah, and especially when, like you said, when you get to those more climactic scenes, like in the sewers, it's like that wouldn't oh have the God. same impact. No, um, if you had that wider frame, because the the sewers would just sort of kind of go on too long, and they just would. It would just not look as yeah. as claustrophobic and and as it's trapped. the kind of thing like you almost if they had gone the other way with it you almost couldn't put your finger on it I reckon yeah and it's the fact that they nailed it so perfectly and so subtly that we are able to put our finger on it now and those those tunnel sequences I mean those are huge tunnels very cinematic yeah. t- and it, obviously they're able to shoot very like harsh lights to get those harsh shadows it also changes the way the Dutch tilt works because the Dutch yes, tilt yes because we're talking about like circular objects now like these mm. tunnels yeah I didn't even think about that that completely changes the way we interpret yeah because if a Dutch tilt goes across a wide frame it's it would it's very it would be very overt and mm. probably too overt whereas sure. because it's more in a square it doesn't look as almost as harsh or it becomes normalised way quicker Yeah. so you almost start to not notice it sometimes because you're just constantly disorientated like mm. Holly is too but that on a more subconscious level that's yeah well that that's you're, you're disorientated enough just through the editing that sequence is the amount of cuts and the fact that characters are going from left to right, the right sound to left. for me the sound oh my is, god it's so the diegetic good. sound in that sequence is unbelievable yeah. like I don't think there's a better final chase scene in cinema like, mm. I think that's the best. Oh, it'll be up there, yeah. It Like, because you feel like, you know, you've it taken could, this Remind character. me how much music's in the last sequence. Nothing. Nothing. I didn't think so. It's yeah, just it's the so, whistles uh, yep. and the chatter and and then the dogs a little bit. But yeah. it's, it's... What I like about that sequence is, yeah, obviously it flips it on its head. Harry's been this confident, easy-speaking... And that's the first time he starts to lose his power. Yes. And it starts to change the way he goes from being, you know, and and this is that one aspect of the Dutch tilt. He's on those tilts, but the camera in that sequence on the on the Ferris wheel is actually moving a little. It's moving oh, with the cool. it's swaying. Yeah. Obviously with the obviously more because of the, the swaying of the cut, but yeah. it has this certain rhythmicness to it. Whereas in those scenes, he becomes almost like Holly in terms of disorientation. Dutch tilts, like everything becomes very 
yeah. very uh, over the top mm. and escalates. And like you said, the editing sequence, the the crash cuts to sounds and and whistles. Yeah. And, it's just incites panic. I love the shot where the fingers are going through like the drainage gate and he just like doesn't have the energy to push it. Yeah, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And the other thing I noticed, I could be wrong about this as well, I think it's the only time we actually see, for a classic noir tale, it's the only time we see a gun is in the last 10 minutes. It's so cool. That's, it's brilliant. Again, that's almost like a subversion of expectation in of itself. Or, yeah. I, or I, guess, I guess you can probably point to a lot of noirs where they do sort of build up to the use of the gun. You know, plant the yes. gun at the start, and, and but there's a lot more death in a, in a more traditional noir film. That's true. Yeah. I think obviously, you know, spoiler, but Harry dies at the end of the film. But it's right. more. But the, it's a fake death at the start. Exactly. It's a it's a fake out death, and it's that sort of interesting aspect. You know, where you know where we're sort of seeing less murder and 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 corruption and and all this stuff earlier on, and mm. it's actually more intrigue and. And obviously, the only actual atrocities that are sort of committed by our antagonist are um, inadvertent. You know that yeah. that you know he's using basically as it boils down, and we find out he's basically stealing and, and kind of reselling penicillin, mm. um, which is leading to the deaths of, of babies in the hospital because they don't have access to this this medicine. Sure, it's like a dilated. Oh, well, they they lose access, but then the medicine is dilated and it's sold on the black yes. market. Correct. Yeah. Um, cool. But the obviously this comes back. What an back asshole! To, yeah, but then <laughs> the film immediately sets the premise with, well, if it wasn't him, it would be someone else right. doing the exact same thing. Um, he, he, the the mono, and this is in such contrast to, like you said, the panic he has at the end of the film when he's completely surrounded and and face to face with Holly, um, is the the suaveness that he. Uh, first off, it's his introduction with the smirk, like. Brilliant, absolutely. That's brilliant. when the guitar riff plays. It's <laughs> so good. So good. The mu- the music. I got to say, the music. It, it's very much reminds me of the Sting. Yeah. In the sense, that it's kind of upbeat and jolly and iconic in a way that almost feels like it should be working against the film, and it kind of works in spite of the film. It almost kind of gives it this fresh sense of joy despite everything else visually being kind yeah. of damp and dark. I guess the one benefit is the Sting is relatively quite an uplifting film. It is a much lighter story, you're right, um, than, than this one I mean, is. that Scott Joplin score is just ridiculously good yeah. and addictive. Um, you strike me as someone who has the vinyl for both the Sting and for the I Third wish Man. I had the Third Man vinyl. We're going to find it. The one I've always wanted was the Once Upon a Time in the West vinyl. Ooh. The Morricone, but you are so hard to find that Morricone vinyl. Oh, I bet it would be. Um, Damn. But, but to, to take it back to, to the, the Orson Well, like I, I wrote in here that he almost sort of breathes fresh life into the story and he, because he's so much more charismatic than the other characters we've seen. I, the, the overlapping dialogue is it's it just kind of excuse me it just kind of threw me off almost like how much he's overlapping dialogue or interrupting holly or um and even i i did rewatch the scene just to fully take in all the dialogue he has in there really sort of encapsulates his sort of evil capitalist sort of ideology and again with the like you said there's the power in that scene not just between those two characters but Mm. the power that he has over the entirety of Vienna and the entirety of the view of the city they have from there and that from here they're all dots and I can make, you know, who cares how many of those dots pass away if I can make a couple of grand or a couple of tens of grand off each one. Um, and I like, this is this the line really stuck out to me when he's talking about sort of the Borgia-controlled sort of 
Spaniards and how that bred all of this artistic innovation and the Renaissance and Leonardo da Vinci and all of that and compared that to, you know, beautiful, peaceful Switzerland that just made the cuckoo clock. Well, it's I would the, have such an interesting sort of mindset think, he has. Well, that, that monologue, that's why this film is the Orson Welles film, I think. Mm. I think that's the moment where everyone hears that and I remember he, you know I remember hearing it for the first time when I watched it but at the same time every time you hear it you're like it's the eloquence of delivery that he does it's the yeah. pacing it's the charm it's even the the slight arrogance behind it it's a you know it is a kind of why there are moments when like I think Leonardo DiCaprio is at his best is when he's doing the smug belief but he believes what he's mm. saying and it's that yeah. It's yep. that Jordan Belford Wolf of Wall Street capitalistic idea, but it's the same thing with Harry Lyme in this moment. He genuinely believes in what he's doing, and like you said, it paces when he's talking about the dots to start. But that last line, it's funny because he articulates this beautiful monologue from start to finish mm. to a, a, a near silent, Har- um, a near silent Holly. Mm. And the hilarious part of it all, the irony of it all, is. He's the author. He's the novelist. Yeah. But he can he cannot <laughs> articulate anywhere near, near the level. Yeah. And that's yeah. that moment of, of power and of intellect and stuff where we sit there and go, that's why we buy into the antagonist. That's mm. why this is a noir film. Because the guy that's literally paid or made a living out of writing could not dream of putting together such a, a, a thesis statement. Yeah. Um and And that the the, the well spokenness of Harry is but nothing but just a side footnote in what is otherwise like his presentation especially his since we've just spent the last hour and ten minutes seeing Holly do nothing but bumble stumble and <laughs> and, and basically goof his way into unlocking the mystery yeah um, I mean the reason he even outs Harry is because a neighbour turned a light switch on <laughs> yeah. Or a cat unravelled the mystery by unravelling his shoelace but he had every reason but this is the thing you would also argue that Harry was 100% absolutely there for like he was just there because he knew just to mess with them just to mess with them essentially that's true it is interesting you bring up the cuckoo cop speech because it is the most uh, well known aspect I think of this film obviously the final scene and the final shot are also up there but there is obviously a massive debate on who wrote this speech this is one of those big contentious moments because my understanding is that a lot of the Orson Welles right directs theories come from his the scenes he stars in himself. Correct. Which I totally buy. I can see that being the case. Um, and you're 100% right. Uh, that has been the back and forth and there is a lot of back and forth and there's all kinds of people weighing in on uh, uh, with comments like people such as even Steven Soderbergh and Tony Gilroy even weighing in <laughs> on this. Which is quite interesting. Soderbergh always gets his nose into everything. He's bloody re-editing Indiana Jones, and <laughs> he's got something to say uh, about everything. But it's really interesting because there were contradictory points of view regarding, uh, particularly this sequence. Um, obviously, however, uh, this is from uh, I have to say an article from WellsNet.com, which is really interesting. It's about awesome about awesome Wells, but obviously has a lot of sources that. It's cross-reference with... Sure. What's interesting... Um, I'm going to read this little excerpt. Is However, what it was even worse... Uh, God, I'm going to need to... Are you blind? No, I just need to highlight it. <laughs> so I can... You know, I had like my glasses the in the car are... and I'm, I regret it too. I have to blow up my document. 
However, what is even worse is that the film can't decide on what's truth and what's fiction, which is quite funny because they make a reference to Citizen Kane after this. It opens up with a clip of Wells talking about his contributions to The Third Man, and he states that he didn't direct any of the movie, which is really important. I've heard that quote, did yeah. contribute to the writing of Harry Lyme's dialogue. The narrator, John Hurt, who we haven't really talked too much about John no, Hurt. No, we haven't. Um, playing the sergeant. Um, Calloway. Calloway. Yeah. Um, then declares that uh, Wells claimed that to have written any of his role, so he had wrote all of it. Yet later in the film, Wells is credited for writing the single most memorable speech of the film, Harry Lyme's observations of the Borgers and Cuckoo Clocks. This film also claims that Wells objected to shooting in the cold, damp sewers, which meant that most of the footage had been shot later at a studio in London. This is reinforced by memories of Guy Hamilton, but is directly contradicted not only by Carol Reed's own comments, but by the evidence of the film itself. Um, it's um, it's obvious that Wells uh, did have a double in many of the shots, just uh, put just as obviously he was actually running through the sewers of Vienna, 90% of the climax. This is so funny. Um, adding what fuel to the fire, Soderbergh and Gilroy... <laughs> There's a new commentary track, which also contradicts many of those claims in the Baker documentary, Who Do You Believe? It also appears we have a full circle back to Citizen Kane. Everyone has their own memories of what really happened. Who is telling the truth will be up to the viewer. I kind of like... I wanted to read that because I I read it and I thought that was a really cool way of, of A, bringing in the Citizen Kane aspect, which we've also done on the show. That is so ironic. The power of perspective... um, and what everyone remembers is always subjective. We never get the full truth, much like probably don't get the full truth um, in this film. Uh, sure. From Holly Martin's perspective, I think he think when he thinks he's worked stuff out. Did Harry Lyme die unnecessarily? Probably. Mm. Um, but it's one of those interesting things where, um, and you know, we're left with such an empty, hollow ending of. No one's really, like you said, no one's no really one's, happy. No and, one's satisfied, yeah. And no one's satisfied. We don't get a really nice, warm ending. And the reality is, just because Harry's dead, does this mean it'll stop? Like, yeah, yeah. probably like not. How much change... Ha- has this man come and truly changed the status quo? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really potent, obviously, in that last shot when... Basically, the, the sort of the the one thing that he thought he was one hundred percent going to get out of this was the girl. Was the girl, <laughs> and, and one Oops. of the coolest one long takes. Yeah, it's quite a It's almost like a little bit of a disorientating why because you're so used to, you know, the Dutch tilts and the sort of disorientation of of the architecture and where everyone's blocked, that it was weird to see someone center a frame just walking towards it. It almost took me a minute to sort of like readjust to that type of filmic language. Yeah, but it's that, and it, but it is that beautiful subversion moment where, at least Holly in his head at the start of that shot, perceives that now everything's come into equilibrium. He's mm. now uh, understands how Vienna works. He's sure. sorted it out. He's got everything sorted. Now he's going to get the girl, and I think that aspect of him being on the left of frame and her exiting right is potent. Like yeah. she she exits right. Yeah, they all both might be walking down the same road together or going down the same road, but they're going on opposite ends of the road. Yeah. They are they are they've had their moment, they've had their interaction, they are now breaking apart. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a fantastic film. 
yeah in in so many facets you've talked about cinematography and the music and we've talked about the performances which both are really good like i do think cotton's performance is is still really 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 strong in this film yeah and even even just the context of like you said when it came out and sort of the freshness of world war Two and the sort of the authoritarian control with you know with the the british guards i suppose or the uh, british soldiers i don't know you call them um but yeah and just like the hopelessness of the ending of has has anything been solved at all is anyone satisfied i guess not but zeke what what would be your highlight scene from the third man uh, that is a <laughs> damn near impossible i i think i would say for me i thought that the the moment that I'm going to say, and I'll I'll use, I think, the Borges cuckoo clock Ferris wheel. I have to do it because mm. of sort of more the personal significance to me. I think that's okay. the moment in which, you know, this is probably the oldest film I had watched at the time when I first watched this sure. film. Because I didn't think, you know, I that's thought... That's probably fair, because you, you didn't see Wizard of Oz until after high school, yeah. Until, yeah, so... Yeah. At the time, this would have been the oldest film I'd watched. And I found what I found quite interesting was, you know, you think to that time or your preconceived notions at a 15, 16 year old level was, oh, the dialogue's going to be janky. Oh, the performances mm. are going to be over the top. And I'm not going to find this interesting. It's in black and white. I'm not going to find it. <laughs> and I remember hearing that line and thinking, that was one of the coolest lines I'd ever heard. That was just such a clever moment of pure charisma I just bought into it and was like mm. right let's go and I know it's like it's two thirds of the way into the film or like a 60 minutes in 70 minutes in but it is a mo- I, I thought the rest of it was intriguing but that moment was like it um, really struck you like a film this old can strike such a core with you correct yeah. and yeah. it's one of those moments where that's when you really see the true power of good cinema yep where it's every time I see the final jewel from Once Upon a Time in the West, I get like shivers. Yeah. Because it's the Morricone score. It's the beautiful back and forth cinematography. It's Henry Fonda's like multi-complex face. It's like what Leone... The opening sequence in in Once Upon a Time in the West, what Leone does with with the opening sequence and Mm. how he creates this diegetic sound. I'm showing it to year sevens, that opening sequence. And I'm like... And at first they're going, oh, but watching that buy-in is just that's what I love. Like, but after- this is like fifteen TikToks long. Is that what is that what they say? <laughs> um, and um, I just—I'm not trying to be mean. Just- it, but there are cool moments. Like even before in the film, his reveal, his alive reveal, is is just really. Oh cool. my god, it's just so impeccably done. The the music smirk. The- but like even just like it kind of reminds me a bit of Blade Runner. Well, I remember the original Blade Runner talking about how brilliant the not just the lighting is in the film, but the way they motivate it and the time they take to motivate it. And it's the same as having a neighbor switch on the light. There could have been a million other ways to have that light flick on. Of like, oh, there's a nearby lantern that's or a street lamp that's sort of busted and flickering on and all. There's there's so many other ways you could do it, but to take the time to do that to have the Orson Welles kind of have that little like whoops I've been caught to that to physical smirk and then just the way and and the detail I love because obviously the first accounting is that he was what hit by a car yes Harry Lime and I love that when Holly goes to run after him he almost gets hit by a car during that interaction I was like oh that's clever 
Yeah, that's sort of clever right there. So, what about you, Jake? Yeah, that that's definitely up there, man. But I, I will say it has to be the final chase through the, the tunnels and the yeah. sewers. Like, just... Just for, I mean, for me, I think for me, when I first saw this film in 2020, I mean, that was the moment for me of like, oh, wow, like this truly is like pioneering the way it's using framing and blocking and lighting. And like, it was, it was evident throughout the entire film, but that was for me when it really crescendoed in that final moment. Like you said, no music, didn't even need it. No. It's a little bit like the French connection in terms of you don't need that much to make something thrilling and exciting. Yeah. So, oh man, that car chase in French Connection is just unbelievable. Even just the tailing scenes in, in the... There's no dialogue, no music. It's yeah. Just, it just, yeah, it's so subtle. And, and I think the third man kind of achieves a very similar uh, level of, of confidence, but 30-ish years even earlier. Yeah. Or maybe 25 years earlier. It's a great example of a time and place film. Um, I think the 40s is particularly ripe with those uh, real... Obviously, but obviously that comes from the context of war and all that. But of course, um, yeah, there's all of that motivating the artists yeah, and the filmmakers yeah, at the but, time. You know, films like this helps create generations after and all mm, that. So, exactly. but it's a film that I, 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 it perplexes me that it's not available on streaming platforms. It does, and thankfully I had my Blu-ray, and it did run. Do. It ran on my. Co- I've noticed lately running Blu-rays on my computer. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it slows down and. It's not just Criterion's because my copy of Armadeus was the same, but Third Man, it it, it was fine, mm. smooth sailing. But uh, I guess unfortunately that's kind of the only way you can catch this film, other than renting or buying on YouTube, iTunes, etc. Yeah, just but, go and buy uh, it. It's, it's worth cheap. it. It's like eight dollars, I think, from JB Hart. Oh, it would be. You're right. Yeah. Just a standard Blu-ray of it. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of Blu-rays <laughs> and streaming platforms, Jack, what's new to uh, streaming platforms and cinemas near us this week? <laughs> So I saw <laughs> the laugh. I, is, I saw a trailer for this Zeke. Not even a trailer. It was like a clip. I think Netflix posted this clip. Okay. And it so it's called Leo. It's a little animated oh. shtick. I'll just read this to you. It's his Adam Sandler as Leo the lizard, oh. stuck in the same Florida school for decades and decide to escape to freedom when learning he only has one year left to live. Now. I saw... Because, yeah, they're obviously headlining the whole Adam Sandler. And I think there's a few other comedians. Like, I think Bill, Bill Burr has a bit in there as well. And But... Is he an old dad? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he can play now is an old dad. But I the thing about this little clip they released, I'm like, okay, they, they want to show, like... I mean, yeah, we've seen Adam Sandler do, like, Hotel Transylvania and things like that. We've seen him do, like, voices and animation. And, like, maybe he has a bit of a, a shtick there. Who knows? Mm. But what I loved about this clip is it's it's Leo the lizard. I think he's just like in a house or in a bedroom, like a typical suburban like child's bedroom. Lots of like ambient lighting. Think Toy Story. And there's like all these little things, a lot like obstacles that almost kill him. And he's like he's like ah 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 ah. And I swear to God, like that was all that all of his voice work in the clip was just that was grunts and and like screams and. I'm like, his assistant could have done this. <laughs> There's about eight Adam Sandler impressions ah, could do that. I know. Just, I just, I was dying laughing. I was like, why even put Adam Sandler's name if that's the clip? Like, he's not even going to talk in it. I did see a trailer I for this. Died. Oh, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what to. You know, at first, I genuinely didn't know what to make of it. I thought it started off as a as a kids film okay. and then evolved into is this a kids is this a sausage party situation oh. or this is like a 
it's actually an adult uh, comedy. But then it kind of came back to like a family. I, comedy, I think I want to sit yeah. there with a PG, like a little bit. A little Stuart Little Escort. Yeah, it was a little odd. It was just odd. Okay, yeah. I didn't quite understand it. Um, and I didn't. Yeah, I was sort of sitting there going like, "Oh, is this an Adam Sandler money film?" Yeah, I think uh, I think it is. Yeah. All right, uh, Adam. Today you've got a four-hour session of the booth. Let's just uh, do some screams. Ah! <laughs> All right, you're good. At least it's not, Seven the, Chris, million at least it's not the Chris Pratt universe. That's true. His Garfield trailer came out, didn't it? Yeah. Do you not know he's, he's what is he? He's Garfield. <laughs> he's, he's Garfield, Lego. He's Mario. Mario. Oh my god. He's genuinely. He's passenger everything. as well. Oh, I hope he's not one of those MCU films. Oh wait, he is. There was a guy who did a reel on it where it's like he teleports to the future and it's like it's the Chris Pratt universe. <laughs> <laughs> Literally everything we grew up with. Chris Pratt is he's now. Chris Pratt now. I want to see Chris Pratt play. Who should he play next week? I reckon famous cartoon character. She he should play Crash Bandicoot. He will probably actually play Crash Bandicoot though. He probably would. And Tom Holland will play Jack from Jack and Text. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a thing because they're doing a Legend of Zelda movie, which weirdly enough Nintendo's doing with Sony, which is yeah, it's very strange. And um, because obviously the Super Mario Brothers movie was, I think, Universal, and they made a billion dollars. So I, well, I don't know what Universal did to tick Nintendo off, but they went with Sony. Yeah. So now the whole thing is Tom Holland's playing, <laughs> playing Link. Ah. From The Legend of Zelda. In all seriousness, Chris Pratt could probably play Ratchet from Ratchet and Clank. <laughs> you know he could. He's kind of got the voice. Oh, my God. I'm actually a... kind of struggling to remember the Ratchet and Clank. Oh, no, that's not, like, that's not true. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. I won't I won't debate you on it, Zeke. No. It's fair enough. But um, that... So, okay. Leo, the lizard, comes to Netflix this week. As well as... Um, I, can't, I can't believe it took him this long to, to make it. The Squid Game Challenge, or it's called Squid Game The Challenge. So it's obviously the live action, people do real Squid Game and reality television. Now, I haven't seen Squid Game. It's Have you not? Nah. Oh. And it's a shame because uh, I missed that whole train. Was a, that was a whole thing and everyone yeah. loved it. And um, But I'm pretty sure this goes against the point of the show. In terms yeah, of yeah probably. And- well, the, the desperation that these people were in for money and exploiting that desperation, higher class or upper class, I should say. Commercialism of... Uh, so, yeah, Netflix exploiting people who want money in a game show. I don't know how much they actually win in real life, but you're right. That kind of... It's weird, isn't it? Contradicts the whole point of the, mm. the film, the, the, the series. It's strange. When the hell is Squid Game Season 2 coming out? It's kind of doing that anime thing that I'm like, oh, I don't really care so much about season two. Like the gimmick was fun and the violence was fun, but yeah, I'm, I'll I'll watch it when probably season two comes out or something. Okay. I'll watch it on a famed day where I'm like, oh, I'll just watch this now. I think I watched all of season one in a day. I think I did binge it. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. I got enough going right now. No, so. it's fair. Uh, yeah, we definitely both do. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I'll catch this, but yeah, it's out there. Uh, we've also got coming to Disney Plus the Naughty Nine, which sees young Andy find out that he's on Santa's naughty list and pulls together a group of kids from the list to get the presents they think they deserve. I'm guessing this is like an animated thing. Okay. Yeah, we're getting all the Christmas films out early, I guess, this year. Uh, we've also got a romance called Far Away Downs. Now stick with me on this, Seek. Sees an English aristocrat who inherits a sprawling ranch reluctantly packed 
with a stockman in order to protect her property from a takeover plot. Does this sound familiar at all? Because this already exists. Isn't this Shrek? <laughs> <laughs> Someone with a swamp. Oh, yeah, it's the swamp she's protecting, exactly. No, 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 this is Baz Luhrmann's Australia recut into a miniseries called oh. Far Way Downs. Yeah. How odd is that? But it's the same, it's, like... It's the same. It's just like... Jackman and stuff. Yeah. I think it's just, like, an extended cut with more scenes, and they've turned it into a miniseries. I never saw Australia. I did, but I was way too young to interp- interpret anything from it. Yeah. But I've seen it. I remember it being excruciatingly long. I heard it was pretty boring. So I don't know why they're making more of it. <laughs> I just don't get I don't get the Baz Luhrmann. I feel bad because he's Australian, so you want to be like, yeah, Australia. But yeah, you want him to represent. Nah, I'm a Peter Weir guy. That's who yeah, I am. Yeah, we, we got enough Australians to yeah. rap. Yeah. You know. I'm, Hell, Shannon Murphy, why not? You know if, I mean? Yeah, exactly. If they said to me, do you want another Baz Luhrmann Jennifer film Kent. or another uh, another Shannon Murphy film? I'd take, Or even another Jennifer Kent film. Yeah, I'd take exactly. both of them over uh, another Baz Luhrmann film. And definitely Peter Weir. Oh my... Over there needs Baz to be Luhrmann. one more. One, one more, more Peter Weir one film. One more, Peter. Do it. Do it before we end the podcast. Yeah. Sneak it out. That would break. That would like... That would be the best. That would be awesome. I just, I just have a... Fa- yeah. I have a sad feeling he's not going to make no. it in time. But I might just watch Gallipoli again and just be happy. But, yeah, that works as well. One of the only podcasts we ever did remotely because yeah. of COVID. Yeah. We did Gallipoli... A Pan's Labyrinth and, and um, The Batman. Wow. I think were the, the three we did remotely. Yeah. Or Master and Commander. Real underrated, that film. Mm, Very I've never film. seen it. That's 2010? Oh, no. It's 2004. 2004. Really? Master and Commander. Oh, wow. It goes way back. He has not directed. We, we, we did it on the show, I think. It's been over 12 years since he's directed. We've something. definitely done a director's corner for Peter. I feel like we did. Yeah, we did Picnic at Hanging Rock, right? That's right. You're right. We did Picnic at Hanging Rock. That's, that's what it was. Yeah. Excellent. Coming to Apple TV Plus this week, we got the 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 Velveteen the Velveteen Rabbit. Okay, fair enough. Which is based on a classic book and sees a seven year old William receive a new favorite toy for Christmas, unlocking a magical world. So the the rabbit comes to life. Ooh. Mm, nice. I, I spoiled it for you. And finally, coming to cinemas. Big week this week, Zeke. I like using those words in quick succession. Uh, the Royal Hotel sees Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick as Americans backpacking through Australia. When they take a temporary live-in job at a remote outback mining town, they find themselves trapped in an unnerving situation that grows rapidly out of their control. Um, so this is a film that Jesse got a sneak peek on for us. Uh, so if you go back to our Wiggles episode, you're going to hear his thoughts on the Royal Hotel. And this film's getting a lot of buzz. And uh, yeah, it comes out this week, so I'm very excited. Very nice. It's going to be very good. It's been 13 years since Peter Weir directed a film. Oh, wow. The Way Back was his last film in 2010. Not The Way Way Back. No. Just The Way Back. And then Master and Commander was in 2003, so it's been 20 years oh, since that Oh my god. Film. Wow. Yeah. I don't know why for 2010, yeah. Too long, Zeke. Far too yeah. long. Hashtag Peter Weir, make one more film. <laughs> please. Please do it. Um, we've also got Cat Person coming to cinemas. It's a sexy thriller in which a college student who works at a movie theatre goes on an awkward date with an older man slash potential murderer. Now it stars Emilia Jones of Coda fame and uh, Nicholas Braun, cousin Greg. What a fun little duo. 
my, one of my favorite parts of my day sometimes is is getting the succession reels pop up and <laughs> just sending them to you especially the ones that have turned the lego they do like the oh lego yeah you sent that the other day animated a funny but one is that is that one of the f- funniest on-screen couples i think so tom and greg i think so i think every tom scene and- is just hilarious i yeah. miss that show I, I miss I miss talking about a show with that enthusiasm. Can I say this coincidence? It's funny you mention that because I had a I had a very vivid dreams last night. I'm glad I got to sleep at all because mm. I was just so stressed about stuff. But instead of not being able to sleep, I got really weird, vivid dreams, and one of them was Succession season five, and I was in it. And um, let's make it just Peter Weir direct it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mark Myloid, move out the way. We got yeah. Peter Weir in town. Um, yeah, no, it was like mm. the it, and I I remember thinking like, wow, this is such a cool, interesting direction to take the show. And then I woke up and I was like, what happened again? I don't know. I genuinely think there'll be one. I reckon there might be one more season. Like mm. it might be, it might not be in the the near future. Sure, but I would be v- if they turned around to you five years from now and went Succession's getting a season five. Would you really be that surprised? I wouldn't be that surprised. I can see him doing like a movie. I can well, see him hey, look, community's I, I, getting a movie, so you know it, it's all. It, it can happen. It can all happen. It's but all up there. There's enough there, I think. Yeah. I mean, the ending is. It's. It almost feels like it's that season four kind of ending of Breaking Bad, where it's the, the show could end here. Sure. And maybe it should end here. Mm. But is there a little bit more left? Yeah. Oh, I really think, and we did talk about. I that mean, we ending. might just be manifesting our desire for more succession, which, of course, we want more succession. Yeah, yeah, it's just, just such a good show. Yeah. I miss, I miss having. I want. What's the next show? Yeah, that we're no, exactly the next uh, Sopranos or 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 you know that Viking Walking Dead Game of Thrones. I want it's the next really thing. really going to grip us. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's the Crown's very close to ending. That's sad. No, that that's it for a lot of people. Yeah, is the crown's the big one? I will say so. If you want to get your Nicholas Braun, sort of um, what's the word? My you Greg know, fix. Your Greg fix, exactly. If you want to get your Greg fix, because I read that I read that log line for Cat Person. I'm like that sounds like another like movie based on a tweet, which was what Zola was, and and Nicholas Braun is actually in Zola as well. And I actually think Zola's a it's a fabulous film. I actually loved it to death. Um, I think the story of Cat Person is based on a New Yorker like a short story or like a piece um so it's got a similar energy to the whole like movie based on a tweet vibe mm. but but it worked for zola surprisingly i think it would work for this too so you can get your greg fixed that way by watching both of those films um let's see now we got a film here sparked by the 25th anniversary of shine which i thought would have been 2021 1996. Mm. That's a bit strange, the wording there. Uh, but The Magical Mind, a portrait in process, sees filmmaker Scott Hicks explore the power of the musical brain and capture intimate footage of international superstar musicians in their private worlds. Yeah, I, I, when I read that, I had to do the math on that. I'm like, wouldn't it be 27th yeah. anniversary? Yeah, very strange. but um, Quite odd. Quite odd, but hey, that's coming to cinemas, and that's exciting. It's cool to see him doing different kinds of things as a, as a director. We've also got Callus Paris, 1958, which is the recently restored and coloured debut performance of Maria Callas at the Paris Opera in December of 1958. So I love stuff like this, where I, I guess it's just a concert film, but like they're yeah. taking 16mm footage and like completely 
cleaned it up and added color. Have you seen any of those like World War One in color films? No, the, well, the ones that Peter Jackson yeah, did, where he's like, they show thinking. not grow out. No, I really want to watch loved it. it. It's almost it's really weird because I've just seen like shots of it. Yeah, and just knowing having that dissonance of knowing that it's artificially colored or color graded. Oh, it's odd. It is very odd. It's just there's some weird like uncanny, uncanny, uncanny valley situation going on there. I don't know, but I I am very optimistic for this one. Um, I Zeke, what what's your history with Digimon? I'm sure we talked about it in our Pokemon no, the episode. Concept didn't care too much. I was a Pokemon man and a Yu Gi Oh man. That's right. It's more Yu Gi Oh's your speed. Um, I think I had a really Digimon care, tape. Yeah. But I never watched I think like it. A, it would be like the one that I'd watch or it'd come up and I would still watch it, but I'd yep. be like, yeah, this is like crap version of Pokemon. <laughs> I'm Which sure that thing's coming soon. There's like a Claymation Pokemon series. Oh, interesting. Early, you'll probably read it before uh, no, um, in December. It's oh, coming, I, I imagine. But it's like a Claymation... Um, this is the first film, but Claymation. Pokemon Resort <laughs> situation. Oh, interesting. So it's like a... Like a therapy looks such an interesting concept i don't really know what it's going to be about but claymation pokemon i'm into it yeah i don't i don't hate that idea but But no i didn't really care for digimon no so the one this week coming out is digimon adventure 02 the beginning i don't think that's how math works two is not the first one but it's okay it is set in the same continuity as the first two digimon anime anime series and is a sequel to digimon adventure last evolution kizuna I like that it's log. Is that the log line? Is that's what about- that co- that's what comes up in Google. That's hilarious. And I, I think I did find a proper log line, and I was like, "Who cares?" Like, <laughs> someone out there knows what I'm talking about when I read those words in in that order. I don't think I've ever met someone who thought Digimon was better than Pokemon. Mm. Maybe it's an American thing. Like, or Maybe. like, I don't know who likes Digimon more. It's like some, if someone said to me, "I like Bakugan kid. more than." Right, like, yeah. Like just, Pokemon, I'd be like, why? What? I mean, like, <laughs> who are you? Yeah, you can tell how many people like Pokemon because <laughs> look how many games there are versus how many Digimon games. Yeah, are it's true. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think anyone's questioning the popularity of <laughs> Pokemon versus Digimon, but I guarantee there's at least one loser out there who's like, Digimon's the best, man. I love it. I'm That's sure. The basement. I'm sure I knew that person in primary school, and I'm just. <laughs> I'm forgetting who who it is or what their name is, but uh, we, we're just going to ignore that. Um, we've also got Trolls Band Together, which is the third installment in the Trolls series, uh, previewing this week at Hoyt's, and I guess the wide releases the following week. Uh, and finally, this is exciting, we've got the WA Screen Culture Awards. That's cool. Which is happening at Luna Leaderville this Sunday at 7pm, so it's the 26th of November. Um, it will be hosted by Aussie Man Reviews. That's pretty cool. That is actually really cool. I think that's a I really cool... I did not cool... realise he's w, like from WA. Uh, ma- maybe he's not. Maybe so he's just maybe flown he's... over here to host the awards. To go to a $50 Luna <laughs> award show. <laughs> but what I found particularly cool about this is there's a lot of films that we're familiar with in the running. There's a lot of features and shorts. I'll start off with so Frank and Frank, which is a local Halo films, uh, film. I think it was shot in Albany. We've got Sweet Witham, Zeke. Oh. Shout out. <laughs> How good. Excellent. We love it. Um, and Violet, Stephen Mihalovich's new film, which I talked about a few weeks ago, the horror, sort of abstract horror film. So those are all up for awards. So that's, I think that, well, that right there is three out of, I think, four or five 
of the nominations. There you go. So that's really exciting. Um, over to the shorts, we got I'm Not a Nurse, which is the one that I second AC start of 2022. Is up for five awards, Zeke. Which wow. is pretty darn cool. So Jessica ba- Bailey for her direction, Damien Fasolo for his cinematography, uh, Christine Ayo for her performance, and Ben Morton for sound and music. Oh, two of our former tutors. That's we'll just it. Just then. Shout out to the whole team. I don't know why I'm uh, best a best a second AC Zeke. What's going on? Yeah, where's I, that I, award? I, best. You know uh, what? If you go to the clapper. alleyway, there's probably <laughs> <laughs> best. It's pretty cool. And the, I mean, we've cool. talked it's about the I'm not a nurse. I was working in the cafe once. And That's you were, right, you were there. And you had a day I'd just shoot, and I walked out the back and went, Hi, Jake. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I discovered a new photo of me from that set. It was only posted the other day. I did not realize it existed. I'd stolen one of the, the actor's wheelchairs and uh, posed on it with my slate. Mm. But did you series it? I uh, Yes. <laughs> I, that, I mean, that was the day I broke. That was the day I broke from the series takes. <laughs> Me and Jared were like, we are done. Damo, not to- bro, we love <laughs> you. We love you, but these series takes are getting out of hand. Hey, 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 hey. He's nominated for a WA Culture Award. So I guess there's something to it, Zeke, these series takes. We should uh, <laughs> do a... When was that? Did you say the 26th? Yes, this Sunday. Just do a quick phone interview with Damien about it. (laughs) Right before he accepts the award. Yeah. Uh, I did message him. I did message him when when I read that. Yeah. That is really cool. But, um, yeah, great for the whole team. No nomination for editing from Tim. What's going on, guys? What can you do? What can you do? do? But, Zeke, that's everything coming to streaming and cinemas this week. Well, almost everything. Are we doing a new film next week? Oh, no, Didn't we know are. we had any left in us to do. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it's pretty dry this summer. Um, we never got that dry sequel. Um, no, did, did I tell you? It got delayed to next year. That's kind of... It was meant to premiere in like August, September. Yeah, but we and were then, planning to do an episode on yeah, it. Yeah, and then I think SAG Strike. And the reason is, I bought my mum the book, The Force of Nature novel, that it's obviously, the sequel is obviously going to be based on, because she read and really liked the first one. And I remember thinking, like, when the hell is this movie coming out? And I Googled it, and yeah, they delayed it till next year. So. Such a shame. Such a shame, because that debate would have been a really good that one. Would have been, I know. We're going to have to have it on, like, Instagram Live. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but Jake, we it's, are... like, it's like the Last Jedi debate that was lost to time, Zeke. Well, there is a there is a really good video still up on Instagram. Oh, that's the best. Of me screaming at Jack. So... Um, <laughs> but then we would have won the war. Like, I think that was one of the quotes. <laughs> Jake, we are catching a new oh, film on the show, but yes. what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching a new Ridley Scott film. Oh, my days. We are watching Napoleon. No doubt you've seen the chaos in the streets. We must make an example. Our France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. Everyone. Everyone around is... 
What is this costume you have on? This is my uniform. I led the French victory at Toulon. What is your name? Napoleon. As the course of my life has changed, Napoleon. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Shall we vote? A look into the military commander's origins and his swift, ruthless climb to emperor, viewed through the prism of his addictive and often volatile relationship with his wife and one true love, Josephine. Um, have you seen any of the reviews or first... Have you seen anything about this film? No, I don't want to see anything. Don't, because I was... They're very upfront about what the film is actually about. And I was like, oh, interesting. So uh, I'll, I will not say, I will not utter a word here. Because um, I, I, I want you to see it and see if that... Well, I mean, I do, obviously, I don't know. I don't know how true these reviews are. But um, I'm really excited. And I'm, I'm particularly excited about next week's podcast because Zeke... We're having a guest on. Oh my god! Another one. Run home. We have another guest <laughs> joining us. One Stephen Clark. Mr. Stephen Clark is back. He's joined us for films like Whiplash, Memories of Murder. I think he's had the most guest appearances, hasn't he? Oh no 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 no! I think that that Jack very much holds that title still. I believe. Really? Yeah. Seriously, I'm very. He, he that. did because you know he came on for almost all the superhero films in the first year. That's very true. Captain one. Marvel, Avengers Endgame. Oh, was that not to... not far from home, surprisingly. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think we were just because we re- we did that film the day it came out, so we mm. went to the cinemas at like six p.m. July first on a Monday, and then got back to yours and started recording at nine. I think Jack just couldn't see it that day. Interesting. And we're like, if we can't get the episode out on Monday, then we'll never get the episode out at all. And now we don't care. It's like, if it goes up on Wednesday, it's fine. Who yeah. cares? <laughs> Weekly show. Exactly. Once a week. That's what uh, you get. Yeah. All right. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Is this the one about that dog? Oh, yeah, there is a dog. <laughs> Napoleon the dog. 